You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, June 15th. Dr. Minna, did you have any opening remarks? I don't. I'm just happy to take questions. All right. Uh, first question. Uh, okay, doctor, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, so Massachusetts recently in the last couple of weeks started disclosing how many antibody tests are being performed each day in the state, but they have not regularly reported the results, if you will, of how many are showing antibodies. I know there's been some questions raised about the reliability of these tests, but I mean, how, how important, I guess, two-prong is it, uh, how quickly do you view like a meaningful amount of tests so we have a good sense of, uh, you know, what antibody deaths could show, but how important is at this stage for the state to also disclose um, sort of the result of it and how many they're actually, you know, how many people they're finding antibodies uh, with, if you will. Yeah, so as we've seen uh, with a number of different um, attempts at this so far, uh, these type, releasing the data can go awry. Uh, and that's because a lot of people are, uh, it, when you're releasing, when you're using antibody data, what you're really trying to do is two things. Uh, one, you're trying to understand uh, how many people have been infected with this, the seroprevalence, and how many people have been hit by the virus. Uh, and then also uh, potentially trying to figure out what people's immune, immunological status is. The, the latter part generally is not reflected at the moment in the test because they're generally qualitative, meaning yes, no, instead of a quantitative number. But the former question is what you're getting at, which is what is the seroprevalence? And what we've seen in other uh, locations and what is often the Achilles heel of seroprevalence studies is you really need to be doing um, uh, very representative sampling. Otherwise, uh, the results that are released can be very, very misleading. And it's, it's sort of similar uh, in idea to the beginning of an epidemic when it looks like mortality is very, very high, but it's because you're, you're selecting for, um, for just the sickest people in, for example, back in January in, in Wuhan. Um, so in this case, we don't wanna select, we, we wanna make sure that we're not selecting antibodies, uh, antibody tests that come from populations that are at particularly higher risk or lower risk and then having people extrapolate that onto the whole population. So what we need to do is develop very representative samples. And uh, how you do that is actually an art form and a science unto itself. Uh, but, and it's similar, for example, to, poll, to doing political polling. We don't wanna go and just ask you know, one small group of people and then extrapolate that to the country. We wanna make sure we're getting representative sampling. The same exact idea follows for, uh, for a serological sampling. And at this moment, I would say that um, most of the serological studies that have been performed, if well, I would say probably all of them, have been uh, have had problems in their representativeness. And so, before those results end up getting released, we need to understand how to um, interpret them in the wider context of the state, and uh, because we don't want people to misinterpret them and then make decisions 
based on what the, the believed seroprevalence is when the reality is the, whole, the actual number could be quite different. So what we're doing anyway, I can speak for ourselves, we're developing uh, a platform to perform uh, very highly representative studies uh, of people across the, the state of Massachusetts through, uh, through a platform we're setting up uh, in association with Harvard. It's going to, we're going to be recruiting people into longitudinal sampling. Uh, and we, we uh, estimate that around 5,000 or so people, if we, if we um, recruit them appropriately so that they represent their communities uh, in many different shapes and sizes, uh, that, that 5,000 to 10,000 will be a sufficient number in the state to follow uh, over time for seroprevalence studies. But until we really get these well-represented studies, I, I, um, as much as I think that the data is interesting to see it, it really runs a risk of being misinterpreted. Did you have a follow-up question? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, I mean, and perhaps it's like you mentioned, it's who you're testing. And so far, the state has disclosed that they've performed, or at least there has been performed, uh, more than 50,000 uh, antibody testing. But is it not so much the number, but sort of the second layer of like, well, it's 50,000 is a, a, a large sample, but who did you test in that? I mean, is 50,000 enough, I guess? Um, or is that still problematic given it depends on um, we don't know who those people were, if you will. Yeah, so 50,000 is a large number for sure. Um, but if, for example, all of them came from, I don't know, one town in Boston, obviously that's not what's, what, what, where they all came from. But if they all came from one little sector, then, then they would not be representative. Um, so I think that what would need to be happened for me to feel comfortable about that data, I would probably want to see where have, well, how was it all collected? Was it only collected, for example, amongst people who were showing up because they thought that they were sick uh, or thought that they had been sick? In which case, it's a, it's a hugely skewed uh, proportion of the population. Uh, I mean, it's a hugely skewed population to try to do seroprevalence studies uh, because it would be enriching for just people who thought they were sick. So you might high, sort of overestimate by large margins. Uh, so until you kind of can discern who those 50,000 are, using it for public health uh, to understand how to allocate resources and where, where we should be expecting the most uh, numbers of cases in the fall. And there's a lot of really, really important components and uses for serological studies and for serology in general. Uh, and until, you know, if it's just all made up of convenience samples though, and you don't know anything about sort of why the sample was taken, then it's, it is very difficult to discern. Thank you very much. Sure. Great. Next question. Hi, Dr. Mino. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I want to ask about primarily about diagnostic testing, but also I suppose if there's a role for antibody testing on this. Um, you know, we're in the middle of June now. We're still falling short of a lot of projections of where we're supposed to be in terms of uh, in terms of testing rates, um, uh, the higher end ones were, you know, staggeringly like 10 million a day, but we're also falling short of ones that are closer to like 900,000, 1 million a day. I'm wondering at this point, you know, because it seems to be like the momentum to 
try and increase testing very aggressively has started to sort of fade. And we're already starting to see uh, many state economies start to reopen. I'm wondering if there's any kind of sense of how to sort of revise those, uh, t those testing projections in something that's more measured and more practical at this point moving forward. And if there's, you know, maybe a new minimum that we should be striking for. And beyond that, if there's maybe um, some kind of new strategies for how to focus those sorts of limited testing moving forward. Yeah, I think um, we have to consider if we're testing to, um, because we're in the middle of, uh, of an outbreak locally and, and we're just trying to do the testing and the contact tracing and get everyone discovered and, and isolated and quarantined, then that can, if the outbreak is very large, then we just need uh, extremely high numbers of tests to, to get it done. And that's kind of where we were. A lot of places, not everywhere, but at least in Massachusetts and other places, we are seeing uh, cases continue to decline as a result of our efforts to social distance and wear masks and, uh, and open up more slowly. And I think that that is allowing us a little bit of leeway in terms of how we utilize tests. Uh, I, I think that once we will probably see uh, a lull a, a bit in terms of what the numbers of tests that are required overall, as long as we continue to see cases go down. But I would, I would warn that we should not allow the testing infrastructure being built to necessarily go back to normal. Uh, the problem is these tests are expensive to keep the uh, infrastructure developed for because it is usually, um, for most laboratories that perform these tests, uh, it means that uh, they are not performing other tests that would routinely be being performed. And so there's a trade-off there. So how to keep um, laboratories, in particular the for-profit laboratories, uh, willing to, to keep building the, uh, the capacity when demand is apparently going down is a very difficult task. Uh, that said, I think that we're absolutely going to need uh, the testing come the fall and, and, and sooner as businesses are opening, many of them are making testing a central part or, want, or at least wanting to make testing a central part of how they keep their employees and their constituents safe. So uh, I think that there is room to revise what the testing capacity should be, but in reality right now, the, the, the testing capacity is largely not being utilized to its maximum. And, uh, and so I think it, it does take some projections into the future to say this is uh, what will testing look like in, in next week, next month, and then you know, six months from now. And hopefully uh, some, that, that message can get through and testing capacity could potentially even continue ramping uh, in preparation for the fall despite um, low demand now, but that's a very hard thing to ask uh, a company to do. And most of the testing that's done in this country, unfortunately, is at least, uh, you know, a lot of it's done in uh, for-profit settings and, and some in not, a lot of it also in the hospital settings, but the not-for-profit and hospital settings have to go back to their daily, uh, daily routine of testing uh, with all the other tests as, as outpatients start to come back in and things like that. So it's going to be a very difficult task to, to keep capacity high if demand isn't, isn't there and the immediate threat isn't there. But I think you know, from a public health perspective, 
uh, it might not be immediate um, today nationwide, but I think you know it's pretty much immediate uh, in terms of the threat that is upon us in the fall. I think, and so uh, uh, how how to encourage that is a, is a pretty difficult task, though. Did you have a follow up? Uh, I guess just along those lines, is there anything that we can do to encourage uh, further demand? Is there you know is it just more practical efforts like a call out to the public to go seek out testing? Do we need to have uh, public health authorities um, do a better outreach with the communities? Well, I think there's two, we don't necessarily want to just be testing. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole conversation has uh, up until very recently been about uh, viral testing. And viral testing is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely essential. We need it to be available, but it's not necessarily the most efficient test if you're just, uh, if prevalence is low. Because essentially people are, even if, even if people become asymptomatically infected, you might not catch them by the time you test them. Uh, and th there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, problems there. Um, it is, it, it, we need to keep that capacity. But in general, we don't necessarily want to just be testing everyone. There's, there's little, there's decreasing utility in it if, if prevalence is low. And in a place like Massachusetts now, prevalence is getting quite low, um, which is very good, of course. So there is a different, there is a role also for serological testing. And the reason why that is important, uh, a bit to Matt's uh, question earlier, uh, serological testing gives you a lot of information uh, not just about what's happening right now, but it can give you essentially what's happening now with a few days delay. Uh, but it can give you a lot of additional information for what has happened to allow you to allocate resources, to allow you to know the trajectory and where the highest risk and most vulnerable sort of populations are. So I think that there's a, that we should be building serological capacity uh, along with building the viral capacity. And I think in times, in peacetime, I would say that in meeting when prevalence is very low, I would say that serological sampling is actually a very powerful tool because it gives you a lot of useful information for public health decision-making. And then in crisis mode, uh, everything has to switch to viral testing where we're trying to monitor and track people with the infections at that moment. So how to balance those, I think both need to continue being put out there, whether it's through subsidies and, and grants from, you know, from government, I think, should really be helping to fund uh, infrastructure for some of these um, testing regimes. Uh, next question. Thank you so much. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you about the serological testing, and we've seen some recent data come out about the range of um, antibody titers that we're seeing in, in convalescent plasma, for example. So I wanted to just ask you about how we can interpret that data and what that means as we go into the fall and as people, you know, start looking to antibody testing, serological testing as a proxy for immunity, how can we interpret those results and you know, what are the gaps in, in understanding what those results could mean? Yeah, so the results are, they will be, um, they will be useful at this very moment in time, understanding exactly what the correlates of protection are uh, is not well-defined. Uh, 
but there's, there are increasingly um, more and more studies that will come out that will show that, uh, for example, on this particular test, uh, or this particular, looking at antibodies against this particular protein, then uh, when you're above a certain amount on an ELISA-based assay, it suggests that you're protected based on neutralizing assays. So once we start getting uh, more and more information, and this information will, can, it is being um, curated now and collected and studied, uh, it will be useful. At the very moment, I think people have been a little bit down about antibodies because, uh, and their utility, because the, the whole field is mirrored by, by a problematic test that came out first. And that was, that was the first time a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the public had ever even heard about antibody testing and serology. And so the, the, the first introduction of it, um, and in the same way that a lot, a lot of people are just getting um, introduced to the, the whole field of infectious disease, epidemiology and testing throughout this pandemic. Um, the first introduction of it was through these really poor performing tests and, and it essentially made a lot of people lose faith in the, in the role of antibodies or just not even be interested in them. Uh, uh, but we know just how important it is to do serological testing, both for prevalence and surveillance, like I was mentioning earlier, but what you're bringing up is using it as a true proxy for immunity, for who's protected, who could potentially transmit the virus, uh, and, and how can we use the, that information to our advantage to better understand um, what people maybe can mix with other people uh, during work life and things along those lines. And so. Uh, we just have to be a little bit patient and let the studies come in. These are not rapid studies to perform. We have to wait uh, and see what levels of protection different levels of antibodies provide by monitoring people over time and seeing if they have uh, 100 units of antibodies. Um, does that mean that they generally don't get infected in the future if they're in a high-risk location? Uh, does just having the presence of any antibodies generally mean that somebody does not get reinfected? Uh, or is there a higher threshold? And, and we'll have to keep doing antibody testing into the future, uh, even when a vaccine comes about, because we'll have to know where to allocate vaccines to, who needs them, uh, who has already been exposed and infected and maybe doesn't necessarily need a vaccine. Uh, and then we'll have to be monitoring the waning rate of antibodies uh, over time, which we anticipate will occur. So the infrastructure for antibody testing needs to be built up, even if right now we're not seeing the immediate benefit uh, beyond seroprevalence, we, it will be there um, quite soon. Okay, next question. Hey, thanks for doing the call. Um, it seems as though in some places where cases are surging, governors and the president himself have suggested that it's mainly a function of the increase in testing. Just want to know if you can comment on to what extent that appears true or not true, and if there are other more useful metrics like positivity rate or hospitalizations that we should be looking at, and what parts of the country maybe worry you the most in those regards. Thanks. Uh, so that that was, I think, I would say that that was the case um, uh, last month or a, month or a little bit longer ago. And, and essentially now what we're seeing, we are seeing real increases. Um, in a lot of places where testing, testing itself is increasing, we're still seeing cases go down. We're seeing population rates go down and positivity rates go down. Uh, in other places in this country, 
we are seeing them go up. And this is not, in many of these spaces uh, and locations and regions, it is not just a result of increased testing. We're seeing uh, increased um, uh, hospitalizations. Uh, Florida is, is continuing to increase in terms of cases, for example, as one state and other states as well. Uh, these are, I think, monitoring hospitalizations is, of course, um, it's, a, it's a good proxy for what's happening uh, in the population. It's a very narrow window. You're only getting the tip of the iceberg if you're looking at hospitalizations and cases. But you can infer what the overall qualitative dynamics of the epidemic are doing in each state and in each location. And, and uh, it's no surprise that the states that have opened up the quickest that have opened up with the most force uh, and the, the states that maybe didn't ever put in the same uh, amount of uh, restrictions and social distancing, those are the states we're seeing the greatest uh, numbers of cases increasing. And so I, I think that uh, while there is some very limited uh, argument to say that, we're, that today we're only seeing places with cases that are increasing come from uh, increased testing, for the most part, we're seeing that the qualitative dynamics in terms of hospitalizations are correlating with increased cases, regardless of the, the, the changes in the numbers of tests. And so in those places, I think there's, uh, unfortunately, it is suggesting that, the, that you know, some of the, the safeguards and some of the, the early control measures are, are breaking down. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Um, uh, Michael, I just wanted to ask, since we uh, don't know exactly what results of antibody testing means um, as far as immunity goes, how should providers be sharing that information then? It seems like it's um, at this point, the number, the antibody results is um, sort of half the picture. So um, what's the most responsible way uh, that providers should be sharing antibody serological test results with uh, folks who get it? Since I think most people are really interested in, does that mean I'm immune? Yeah, well, I, I actually would say that a lot of people are very interested in wanting to know if, if when they had symptoms back in March, they were actually infected, regardless of the immunity picture. So on the one hand, there's a, a desire to know. And that's absolutely just makes perfect sense. A lot, if, you've, if you think you've been infected, you want to know. This is a looming question that probably millions and millions of Americans are asking themselves uh, every day today. So on the one hand, I think having the tests be available for consumers and for patients uh, is just the right thing to do. Um, we don't, I, I do think that it need that the messaging needs to be very clear uh, that what the antibodies mean that somebody has, a lot of people aren't even getting quantitative results. Most of the, um, the tests that are performed today are just giving binary results. Do you have antibodies or do you not? And um, so that can be very useful. I would say that most people who have antibodies will have some level of personal protection. And that personal protection will also mean that they probably will not be, the, if they were to get infected a second time, which we still don't know how frequently, we know it can happen rarely. We don't know if it ever happens routinely. Um, we, uh, we can use that information to, to be able to say that if somebody were to get exposed a second time, that if you have antibodies, probably the viral load that you would develop would still be 
much lower than, um, than somebody without antibodies on average. So I think that there is a utility, even without knowing the quantitative value, without knowing somebody's pure sort of risk, uh, I do think that it's okay to, to, um, to have that information in mind. I would encourage any physicians giving that information to patients or patients or individuals who are going and getting these tests without necessarily um, speaking directly with a physician to just recognize that it doesn't mean that it's not a foolproof test if you are infected and if you're positive. I think we just have to continue being smart. We have to continue wearing masks. Um, we have to continue trying to you know, social distance and, and mitigate spread as much as we can, regardless of our antibody response. Uh, but having the knowledge, I think, doesn't need to, to mean that people go out and party uh, as though they, they are not immune. It just can be handled with maturity and, and responsibly and say, let people know that they have been exposed, they've been infected, and probably they're at lower risk for a severe infection. Uh, and, you know, some people are trying to make very difficult decisions. Do they start to see their um, elderly parents uh, again or, or let their kids see their grandparents? I think that, you know, whether you have antibodies or not, it's not going to be foolproof, but it might, um, it, it might give some sort of information that, that can help people make more informed decisions. And it can also help us to understand uh, at, a, at a public health perspective when we're looking, for example, in nursing homes, I'd say even if we're not uh, giving each individual their, in, their results, we could potentially look at the prevalence that's happened in a nursing home and understand not just individual level risk, but what is the risk of another massive sort of explosion of, of transmission within a given location or within a given institution. And if it's already had 60 or 70% of people infected, then maybe that's actually at a, at a more population level. It, it um, provides you a little bit more relief that maybe you're not, you shouldn't necessarily expect a massive outbreak again in that location. So individual level antibody results can do inform population level results. So there's lots of reasons, even though the, the, the analysis of these is still imperfect. Great, thank you so much. Sure. Next question. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the balance of contact tracing and social distancing. Um, a lot of European countries are moving ahead with opening restaurants and even fully opening schools. Um, could you talk about how risky uh, this is if you're unable to keep kind of very strict social distancing measures? And if you have, um, a robust contact tracing program and testing program in place, uh, can you begin to kind of ease up on those social distancing measures? I think the key is to get prevalence very low first. Um, if we start to open up and prevalence has not gotten very low, then we're just starting with, um, we're, we're, we're feeding a, a fire that's already burning brightly. And, and, you know, so that's going to be very difficult to control what happens as a result of opening up, even if you open up responsibly, if, if cases are already happening, then you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. I think uh, driving the cases down very low, so some of um, 
for example, to get to get the prevalence to maybe two per hundred thousand in a in a given state or or location before starting to open up, could be a, a responsible way to start uh, to start being able to open up different stores and restaurants and things like that um, in a in a sort of a combed out way where you have fewer tables, you keep people social distancing. I think it can be done, um, but we have to have the monitoring in place. That monitoring will be um, monitoring hospitalizations, uh, continuing viral tests, and continuing serological tests. Along with that, as you mentioned, if you have contact tracing in place, and I think there's a lot of room for new types of contact tracing to be put in place. The introduction of mobile phones, we still do contact tracing a pretty, pretty sort of um, traditional way where we, we go and talk physically or on the phone to somebody who's been infected. We try to ask them to recall everyone that they've been in contact with, which is very difficult, particularly in urban areas where people are walking down the street and in Starbucks or where, you know, whatever restaurant or store they might be in. We need to understand that people will not know all the people that they have been in contact with. So that's where I think um, there, there can be discussions if it's possible to use technology on our side to uh, be able to contact trace very rapidly by, by leveraging the mobile phones that we all walk around with um, for, as one example. And there's lots of privacy issues that come in play. And I, and I don't, I won't pretend to understand most of those issues uh, well, I just know that they exist and they need to be accounted for. But the point is, if we can have uh, contact tracing that's set up to deploy extremely quickly and comprehensively, then I think between having the testing on board, the contact tracing um, efforts on board and ready to deploy when cases come in, I think that puts us into, in a very good place for being able to start opening things up with, um, with a, an acceptable level of risk relative to the, um, relative to the risk of not opening up uh, in terms of the public health economy. And so I, I think um, we can do it. We just, but the first step is to really make sure prevalence is very low. Did you have a follow-up question? Um, yeah, just really quickly. Um, also on the, on the recent kind of uh, new clusters found in China um, and the, the kind of effort to bring potentially tougher measures into Beijing. Um, do you think that's an overreaction to the, um, I guess it's 75, it's under 100 new cases found there? I think if this virus has taught us anything, there is no overreaction to it. Um, mm. uh, I think we have to be smart. We have to not collapse our economies. Um, but we also, uh, I remember months ago, back in February, um, I, I penned this op-ed that I never submitted. It's probably going to go to one of your um, places, but uh, I wanted to call it, you're not being melodramatic about the coronavirus. And because at the time there was a lot of people who were saying, oh, you know, you don't need to close down. You don't need to stop shaking hands. That's, you know, that's too much. And uh, that's overreacting. And we are now getting, I don't think that you would have asked me that question as an example, and this is no offense or anything, um, a month and a half ago. Uh, we would have just been assuming that we need to do everything we can if there's any cases. And so as things start to become more peaceful, 
people start to revert back to their regular way of thinking. And that can get us in really hot water. And I, I would say that there is no, there is no real overreaction to this virus. It has the potential to do extraordinary damage to our society. And the, the key thing is to keep cases from getting out of control as, as best we can. Um, but we have to have uh, epidemiologists speaking to economists, speaking to policymakers on a routine basis to ensure that we're doing it smart and we're doing it in a way that um, that doesn't endanger um, having the, the, the economic toll uh, and the cost of that be, be greater than the virus itself. Great, thank you so much. Sure. Next question. Thank you for taking the time, really appreciate it. Um, can I ask you what your concerns are, if any, about the resumption of large-scale indoor events, such as a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday? Um, well, without speaking too much to the specific rally you're referring to, um, I think it's very dangerous right now. I mean, we're, we're talking about not having we're, we're still talking about spacing restaurant tables uh, apart and thinning them out by, a, you know, two thirds to, to not have transmission. We're still talking about only opening up, you know, different facilities that where people can sit outside uh, in small groups of people. And that's smart at the moment. The idea of having a rally is not smart. Um, it it doesn't need to happen. There is no, uh, there are some, I think there are some things in society that have been sufficiently important recently. Uh, and of course, this is my very, this is my personal opinion, not one born of epidemiology. But there have been some events outdoors recently with a lot of people that I think, you know, there are times in, in history when the, the moments have to be seized. And so, and and there there have been you know with protests I think that those have been outdoors people have been you know and th those do run a risk um, but at the very least they're outdoors and I think that they have been for there is no other way to have had those happen um, to have an indoor rally intentionally uh, at this very moment in time is just not smart it puts people at risk. Uh, and, you know, especially if a large fraction of the people who attend are older, above 50 years old, uh, and not, you know, 20, not that above 50 is older, but, you know, not, it's not elderly, but it's still a higher risk, and above 60 is much higher risk. And, and uh, I think that it is liable to cause deaths. And, you know, so what rally is worth people dying? I, I just don't know. Ask also, we're seeing uh, the emergence, I guess, of uh, the delayed first wave in a lot, a lot of states. What do you think is driving that? These are states in many ca cases that um, had really low case totals as compared to, for instance, New York and Illinois until uh, a month ago. Is it that these states might have a false sense of confidence in their reopening and they're just sort of getting the delayed impact? Why are we seeing like the Arizona's um, yeah, I think what you said is probably accurate. Um, I do believe, especially the places that didn't have many cases, despite not doing a tremendous amount of social distancing, probably felt 
um, probably didn't necessarily see the great benefit of it. Uh, some more rural areas needed more time for the virus to sort of enter into those communities and start really taking off. And I do think that it's the more laxed um, social distancing measures, the more laxed precautions, and the real drive to open back up that is probably um, uh, resulting in this sort of delayed wave of cases. And it's not just a wave. I think that what we're seeing in a lot of these places is, in many cases, the first, uh, the first wave of this epidemic is still upon us um, in many of these places. And it's just been growing slowly. And as social distancing measures have been lifted, uh, increasingly in many of these areas, we are seeing uh, that no place is immune to this virus and it will, it will travel where people travel. Um, and uh, for places that are a little bit less densely populated, for example, than New York City uh, or Boston or, or Seattle, uh, then we will see a delay uh, in terms of large numbers of cases. But that shouldn't be confused with the idea that cases cannot become out of control. And I think we're unfortunately starting to see some places beginning to brim in terms of their their healthcare facilities, whereas a, a month or two ago, they might have said we didn't have many cases in some of these areas. Now they're starting to see this just slow creep up that can um, quickly, unfortunately, hit a breaking point, at which point uh, new cases outstrip medical resources. And then uh, these places could quickly find themselves blindsided a bit and, and have to go into crisis mode. And, and finally, thank you, uh, can I ask, what sort of stage the pandemic do you think we're in? A lot of the discourse seems to reflect that we're sort of over the hump and pivoting to reopening. Um, but uh, in many communities, as you mentioned, it seems like we're just at the early stages. How far through this are we? Uh, we're still at the beginning. Um, we're not through this. Uh, the U.S. is a huge country. We like to look at the U.S. as a country with a with numbers that you know reflect the whole country, but it is. We're, we're essentially the size of Europe. You know, we have, you could think of some large states as, as countries. And when you think of it like that, we're not evaluating Europe as a whole. We're evaluating Europe per country. And we should be doing the same here. States have their own policies in the United States. Um, and, that, and, and states have their own social structure, physical social structure, as well as um, uh, personal social structure. And, um, and that means that we're seeing very different and heterogeneous dynamics in different parts of the country at any given time. Uh, and we will see that some places as they, uh, some places have, we, we saw clear spikes like in New York and Massachusetts, and we have gotten over that first uh, of what will probably be multiple humps of this, uh, of this epidemic. And some places didn't yet see that and they are just slowly increasing and increasing and so I, I think that we have to take each state separately. Uh, and some of them have not yet experienced a, a critical mass of cases that put them into jeopardy um, from their public health and their health infrastructure. Uh, but it, but it, it can get there if, if the virus is allowed to go unchecked. Um, so I, I don't think we're in a place. We're in many different places with this virus in this country. Next question. Um, I really appreciate this. I wanted to ask um, Dr. Mina about um, 
testing in nursing homes. A month ago, you were talking about the role you, were, you had in the Massachusetts effort. Um, I wondered if you could give me an update on how that baseline testing has gone. You were emphasizing that it's not a good idea, it's not enough to just do baseline testing. Um, Florida has now moved toward um, testing all residents and staff in homes, but that's where they're stopping and it's just PCR. Um, I know you've talked about the importance of also doing antibody testing. So my question is, what is the best protocol that should, you know, what's in an ideal world, where should we be in um, a testing protocol? And um, what is it going to take to get to that point so that we can start allowing visitors back in nursing homes? So I think that the type of testing we're doing within a given nursing home should um, be dynamic and it should be adaptable to what's happening in the community. If you're in a nursing home in some part of the United States and that community has not seen a single case of the virus, do you have to be testing everyone every single day, for example? Probably not. Um, but if you're in a region where, where cases out in the community are um, abundant still, then you probably need to have more frequent testing. Um, I think that having a single baseline test, um, well, I won't, I won't harp on that, that effort, but I would say that for many nursing homes, I think there should be continued monitoring for cases. There should be very low bars to ask a staff member to not come into work if they're feeling any sense of illness and to go get tested instead. Uh, maybe the nursing home that they work in or if they're part of a union can offer that type of testing uh, to them. And I think that we have to have, a lot of nursing homes still don't have ready access to testing. And when they do, they're still getting delays of a day or two before results come back and uh, in certain parts of the country. And so if you have a delay of two days, then that really doesn't do much if you're allowing somebody to work during that period of time. So I, I think that we need to, to ensure the safety of the residents and the staff in nursing homes and other senior care facilities, uh, as well as the community. I think we have to have the, the access to testing has to be there. The leadership within these nursing homes has to have, feel empowered to be able to do the testing when they need to in a way that can return results quickly, in a way that can allow them to continue functioning. Uh, whether that means that they're doing testing of everyone or a subsample of everyone every three days or every week or every two weeks or, or not at all and waiting until there's um, some reason to test, I think that there's a role for any of those different um, options as long as it's done recognizing what the risks are, what the, what the flags are to change the testing strategy on a moment's notice to say, you know, we've been testing everyone every week or two, but we've, we've just had a, a, a case that we believe may have spread to other people. We need to go in and test everyone tomorrow. If you can have that type of ready access to um, expanding and contracting the testing um, frequency and, and amount, I think that that is how we need to be able to adapt to this virus because there will be long periods of time when things are quiet 
And if we're doing very intensive testing during those periods of time, people will get burned out and finances will get um, depleted. So we need to figure out how to do it in, a, in an intelligent way. Uh, the reason I think that antibody testing can support viral testing is because it can allow us to know who's at risk. It can, as, especially as, um, as seroprevalence continues to increase across the population with, with increased um, transmission events, and of course the vaccines come around, then serology can really help us almost forecast where this virus is going to go by looking at where the gaps in immunity are. Sometimes those will be in specific nursing homes. Sometimes they'll be in specific staff members in the nursing homes. And so you can potentially use that knowledge to know who, um, who is at greatest risk and maybe you can allocate where they work and who they work with uh, appropriately. But I think the, the, the main message I would like to get out is that we have to be thinking, there is no perfect testing strategy. Um, everything comes at a cost and both person time and, and money. And, um, and I think the main point is we have to figure out how to be adaptable and to be adaptable with our testing, we need everyone to feel empowered and know exactly where to go to get testing when it's needed. How do you feel about rapid testing? I think it's great if it comes on board. Um, I think rapid testing can be one of the ways to really stop. I, I, in general, I would say rapid testing as a long-term surveillance program might not end up being the most efficient. It's appealing and enticing to think that everyone in America will test themselves every day. Maybe that would happen, um, but that would, be a, that would be a long shot, I would say. Um, if institutions, I think it should be part of this dynamic testing process. If you see an outbreak, maybe you have uh, on a routine basis, you're sending out serological testing and you're sending out virological testing to a lab that's a little bit cheaper, for example, to do the test in bulk, um, but it's a slight you know, delay. Um, but if you see an outbreak, maybe then you have point of care rapid tests right there ready to deploy. Now, of course, if the point of care or rapid test can become cheaper than um, laboratory-based testing and reliable, uh, then I think, uh, of course, that's the best of both worlds. And once that happens, and I do think it will happen, uh, then that will, be the, that will become the future. How frequently people will use it is still going to be adaptable, still going to be cost-constrained, um, uh, uh, but once they exist, I think they'll be game changers. Thanks. Next question. Hi, Dr. Mina. Um, the NBA has decided to restart a season at a closed campus, Walt Disney World Resort. Some have referred to it as a bubble. Um, they plan to administer daily testing for its hundreds of players and staff with a 10-day man mandatory reentry quarantine if you leave campus. That seems sufficient, but one of the biggest questions is whether the hundreds of Disney support staff who are currently allowed to leave and enter uh, or leave and return to their families as they please, these are the culinary, housekeeping, custodial staff. The question is whether they will need to practice the same strict regulations or whether you think social distancing and temperature checks for the Disney staffers will suffice to protect the NBA's restart. So how would you recommend the league handle the Disney staff it needs to operate and do they have to be on the same level of daily testing as the athletes and staff? Uh, 
Can you just, uh, I, I wasn't familiar enough with the program, I had heard about it, but are they, they're testing just for 10 days and then what are they doing after those 10 days? They're testing the players and staff, um, I believe every day or every other day um, upon entry into the bubble. And they're also testing them before they fly into Orlando. Um, but the Disney staff are a separate issue. They are subject to the union's guidelines, which are temperature checks upon arrival at work. And there's some worry out there that if players or staff are interacting with these um, yeah. staff members, that it will kind of puncture that bubble. Yeah, I'll answer the question, but I want I, I do want more clarification after about what they're planning to do after that first reentry period. But I, I the the short answer is this virus doesn't stop at basketball players and coaches and teammates. This this virus will. Um, transmit to anyone who's susceptible and, and gets in its way. Uh, so, of course, I think that if these staff members are going to, and they're essential to, to the normal functioning, I'm sure. So if they're going to be in the location, then that is a clearly a way that the virus can uh, get into the space. And I would say that they should be offered very frequent testing as well. Uh, to make sure that they're that they're safe, that they're not bringing cases into the bubble, and they're not bringing cases back out of the bubble if they occur, um, and uh, it's just the right thing to do. So I do think that the staff should probably, if the effort is to get uh, get it to a point that after the reentry period, in particular, that testing frequency declines overall uh, amongst, in this case, the basketball players and, and teammates. Um, then that, that's a clear risk that the virus could go, uh, could start spreading unabated if it comes in with, from a staff member. So uh, one question I had is after that, you said that there was a 10 day period, are they planning to continue testing the teams after that reentry period? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. If a player needs to attend uh, a personal matter outside of Orlando and fly to Los Angeles and come back, they would be subject to a 10 day quarantine, mm -hmm. the bubble, and then, you know, daily testing for that. And then after that, they are still gonna undergo daily testing. So oh, okay. this 10 well. day quarantine would only apply to, if you say get a, a hall pass and you can leave and come back, you would be quarantined for 10 days. Oh, before okay. you that, back. That, yeah, that makes more sense. So. Um, so yeah, the, the answer to your question is very clear cut. I would say that the staff members are clear, are clearly able to pick up the virus just like anyone else, and they should be tested just like anyone else who might be entering that bubble. Thank you. Uh, next question. There we go. Oh, thank you. Um, th thanks so much. Um, I was wondering, uh, Dr. Mina, if you could talk a little bit about little bit more about what you called the art and science of representative sampling at the beginning. You know, for a seroprevalence study, what is the best way to recruit volunteers and make sure that you're getting a representative sample? So you need good databases. So the, the census type of data could be, is very powerful. It's a little bit difficult to get um, access to, but it can be very powerful data to be able to build representative samples. Um, and uh, it's very similar, for example, to how politicians will poll. You don't want to just go and call a whole bunch of college students in a small state 
and, uh, and then assume that their responses reflect the state as a whole. Um, so you want to know sort of what are the demographics of individuals you want to you want to understand what's the sort of demographic of the region you're trying to pull, uh, or in this case test and uh, ensure that you have some balance that reflects the right frequencies of those individuals uh, in their communities and in the in the larger community um, as well. And so the, that is uh, a lot of it would pull would come from um, political type of uh, databases, uh, which generally are where a lot of these things live, um, but also the Census um, Bureau. And they can just be, they, they, those can be the powerful source of information. If you don't have access to that, you can uh, go out and uh, there are institutions that perform, um, perform this kind of work and they'll, they'll essentially um, go through and find random people from, from big, essentially like opening up the white pages and and picking random people and calling them up and uh, based on who you end up getting as a respondents, uh, then devising a pretty representative sample that looks like the makeup of the of the community at large. So there, there's a lot of effort that needs to go into building a good representative sample. But once you have it and you can follow them and, and sort of recruit them into a long term study like we are trying to do, it can be very powerful moving forward and for for a state. Uh, for example, to be able to monitor their, uh, in an efficient way, be able to monitor the larger um, sort of dynamics of the virus. And can you talk a little bit more about the shortcomings of the seroprevalence studies that have been done um, to date? Yeah, many of them were based on, uh, for example, going and sitting on a sidewalk and asking people to um, to uh, give a drop of blood. So there were, there were problems in two parts. One, many of them were just not representative. They were very localized. They went into to areas a lot of times that were underserved and offered tests um, or areas that were overserved and offered tests. Um, hospitals are, are a biased population to do testing in, for example. Um, and then a lot of the tests themselves early on were just poor. They were poor performing tests. They, they were off in their accuracy, whereas now we know that the accuracy of some of the, the laboratory-based tests uh, approach 100% sensitivity and 99.6 or 99.8% specificity. So we know that most of the results that are getting, um, that we're receiving now from these, um, from laboratory-based tests are accurate. Uh, but, but those caused, those early tests really caused a lot of problems earlier on. Thank you. Sure. This concludes the June 15th press conference.